You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. As we are, uh, if would you remain standing if you're able and turn to Genesis chapter 25. Just a, a bit of a disclaimer, if you're new or visiting with us, we're, we're reading whole chapters. Some of them are longer than others. So if you need to sit down, if you, if you have to, feel free to do that. But we're going to read all of chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. And all these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Berlehairoi. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. The sons, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdbeel, Mibzam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tamar, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 175 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, verse 19, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there was twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. His name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, verse 29, Esau came in from the field and, and he, was, he was exhausted. And Esau said to, to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau, Esau said, I'm about to die. What, is, what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And this is God's word to us this morning. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning. And we come, as we've read now, to the 25th chapter of this great and grand narrative of Scripture. If you are new to the Christian faith, perhaps you're new just to this book, Genesis, I don't want you to be discouraged this morning. And I don't want you to be disinterested. Uh, As we have just read this text, there are a lot of bizarre names. There are a lot of bizarre places, some of which we have never heard of before or, quite frankly, care to hear of again. However, some of what we will be discovering in this chapter as we journey through this text together has the deepest and most profound relevance to your life and mine. Some of what we will discover this morning gets at the very core of what it means to be the people of God. Furthermore, some of what we'll get at this morning gets at the very core of what it means for God himself to be God. And so, in the strength of his grace, may the Lord grant us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. And may we leave different than we came in as a result of this text. For some time now, we have been looking into, we have been following in Genesis the origin and development of one family. One family which would eventually become one nation, the nation of Israel. And this whole journey began in chapter 12 with the calling of Abram. Abram and a promise given to both Abram and Sarai that God would bless their womb. And that through Abraham, he would make a mighty nation, a multitude that would outnumber the stars of the heaven or the sands of the sea. And Abraham received this promise and God would double down on this promise in chapter 13 and 14 and 15. God would keep re-upping his promise to Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the climax of this remarkable promise from God came in the miraculous birth of Isaac, the son of of Abraham, the miraculous birth of Isaac. And Isaac would come and he would be born to Sarah after 25 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. 
And then Isaac would be born and he would grow into a young man. But it wasn't until Isaac was 40 years old when last chapter in chapter 24, through a grand display of God's providence, God would bring Isaac a wife by the name of Rebekah. Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the sister of Laban, would become the wife of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And the promise of God would continue now through the lineage of Isaac. And now this morning we come to following and we're continuing this this story, this following of the history and the development of this one family. And now Moses is going to zoom back in on Isaac and Rebekah and the birth of their two twin boys, Esau and Jacob. But before we get to that remarkable birth narrative, verses 1 through 18, Moses, the author of Genesis, records two important passings, two deaths. First, the death of Abraham, and then the death of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. We won't spend too much time here, but let's look at verses 7 and 8 one more time. Moses says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Pastor Hans talked last week about transitions, how chapter 24 was a major transition in this story. Well, chapter 25 is an ongoing transition. This is the death of the patriarch. We've been following him for weeks upon weeks on end since chapter 12. And now this is a record of his passing. Abraham, the patriarch is buried with his wife, Sarah in the tomb that he purchased from Ephron, the Hittite back in chapter 23. The patriarch is dead, but the promise continues. Along with Abraham, Moses records the death of Ishmael. Ishmael, of course, is the firstborn son of Abraham, but not born of Sarah. Instead, because of the impatience of both Sarah and Abraham, Ishmael was born to Hagar, the Egyptian slave back in chapter 16 of Genesis. And here Moses records the death of Ishmael. Look at verse 16 and following. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Verse 17, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Again, although Ishmael was the son of Abraham, he was not the son of the promise because he was not born of Sarah. And so Ishmael's descendants would not live in Canaan. They would not live in God's promised land. Instead, they would live outside in the area of Egypt and Assyria, outside of the promised land. So Moses records these two significant passings, the passing of Abraham, 175 years, and the passing of Ishmael, 137 years. This is a transition in the story, in the development of this nation, the nation of Israel. Moses now moves, the camera angle moves again after he records these deaths and he turns now to Isaac and Rebekah in the, tw- in the birth of their two twin boys. And this is where we're going to camp out for the rest of our, of our time. Look at verses 19 and following. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, this feels a bit like deja vu, doesn't it? Rebecca is devastated because she is not able to give birth. Just like Sarah, her mother-in-law, was not able to give birth. She was barren, and yet she had received the promise that it would be through her womb that God's offspring would come. Yet both of them, both Isaac and Rebecca, would not look for a shortcut. They, they don't like, like Abraham and Sarah, they don't look for a, a, a concubine or a surrogate to carry the son of Isaac instead. It seems Isaac has learned a bit from his history, from his heritage. And Isaac appeals to God. He goes to the Lord in prayer. Isaac asks God to open the womb of Rebekah and the Lord grants the prayer and Rebekah conceives. But don't miss this little detail. Let your eyes fall down to verse 26 briefly. We'll get there in just a moment, but don't miss this little detail. In verse 26, Moses records that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to the twins. So they met and were married at 40 and given the promise. And she doesn't conceive until Isaac is 60. That means just like Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years to receive their promise, Isaac and Rebekah would have to wait 20 years before God would answer the prayer. 20 years. I don't know about you guys. I get antsy after 20 minutes of prayer and I've asked the Lord for something significant. But 25 years for Abraham and Sarah, 20 years for Rebekah and Isaac. But after 20 years of waiting and longing and agonizing, waiting, God opens the womb of Rebekah and they conceive. And behold, she's with twins, twin boys. And although this would appear to be like a double blessing, right? Two children in the womb, two children, the sons of the promise. This would, this would seem like great and glorious news to be celebrated. Something goes terribly wrong with the, president, with the pregnancy. The children, look at verse 22. Moses records, he says, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? The word for struggled there in, in the Hebrew, our English translation is really weak. The word for struggled in the Hebrew is actually smash or to smash. So both of these boys, these twin boys, Esau and Jacob are smashing each other in the womb. This isn't a mere struggle. This is like a UFC sort of ground and pound struggle in the womb. The two babies are not like fluttering butterflies in the womb waiting to, uh, you know, emerge from their mother's cocoon. No, they're engaged in mortal combat. And Rebecca is feeling all of it. Now, I remember when Malia was pregnant, 
We never had twins. I can't imagine what that's like. But with just one baby in there, she was always talking about how, you know, the baby was just up underneath the rib, right? And she's always doing this thing, pushing the baby down. Imagine twins warring in your womb. Imagine the turmoil that Rebecca is feeling. And this conflict between Esau and Jacob would go on to characterize their relationship outside of the womb. They would go on warring against each other outside of the womb. This was only a sign of things to come. And so Rebecca understandably is desperate for some answers. What is going on, Lord? I thought this was supposed to be a blessing. And so she appeals to the Lord at the end of verse 22 and she inquires of the Lord and then God responds and things get really interesting. Look at verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is not the kind of news you want to hear as a new mom. Your children will be divided. They will be at war with each other. One will be stronger than the other. And by the way, the natural order of things will be reversed. The older will serve the younger which is terrifying news in the ancient East. It is always the older and the stronger that would take the offspring, the seed of the family on into battle, into war. But in this prophecy over her womb, the older will serve the younger. This is terrible news. But the question for us this morning is, what does this mean? What does this mean that that there'll be two Peoples in your womb divided, two kingdoms at war with each other. And and how is it relevant? And why does the older serve the younger? Why does, what does that mean? What does that mean to us? And to answer this question, I want us to zoom up just, or zoom out a little bit and just sort of hover over this text for just a moment. And what we'll see when we zoom out for just a moment is a pattern begin to emerge as it relates to birth order. And what we'll see is that God tends to work against nature. God tends to work against nature as it relates to birth order. In other words, God doesn't choose the oldest or the strongest in order to further his offspring, which would have been customary for every other king and kingdom. He doesn't choose the oldest and he doesn't choose the strongest. Now notice with me as we're zoomed out a bit, remember God approved of Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And remember Cain was so overcome with grief and jealousy and envy that he ends up killing his brother, but the older was to serve the younger. Remember, Ishmael was the older son. He's the firstborn of Abraham, but the promise came through Isaac. Esau, in our text, is older, yet Jacob is the chosen one. Joseph, we move further in the story, Joseph was the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob. And yet it was through 
Joseph that God would preserve his people in Egypt. It wasn't the older, it was the younger. Remember King David. King David was the youngest son of Jesse, and he was the scrawniest son of Jesse, and yet it was David who ascends the throne. He becomes the king of Israel. And the question for us this morning is, why does God do this? Why does, he go, why does he choose the youngest and the weakest to fulfill his great and mighty plans in the world? Why does he do this? And beloved friends, visitors, we don't have to guess at why God does this. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 gives us the answer as to why God does this. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27. Listen to this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why, Paul? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why David? Why Jacob? Why Joseph? so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. But surely, surely there was something, something that God saw deep down in Jacob that caused God to elect Jacob and not Esau. Surely Jacob would do something to prove that he is worthy of God's love. Surely there's something that God saw deep down that none of us can see because Jacob is a scoundrel. And the answer to that is no. Jacob was a scoundrel just like his brother. He was chosen, but he was a scoundrel. He was manipulative. He was downright obnoxious. He was a deceiver, which is what Jacob means, to deceive. And besides the decree from God in verse 23, when God prophesies over Rebekah's womb, comes well before they're even born. This is what's going to happen. The older will serve the younger. And we have to process that. We have to deal with that. And Paul says, the answer is, so that no human being might boast in the presence of, of God. The Apostle Paul, also in Romans chapter 9, would draw on this very example when he writes to the church in Rome. Now before I read this text, I know that some pretty serious theological battling battlegrounds and battle lines have been drawn in as a result of this text. My goal this morning is not to 
use the Bible as a hammer. My goal this morning is to let God's wisdom in his election, why he chooses some and not others to just be born out in front of us and let God through his spirit do his work through the text. So with that as a caveat or a disclaimer, let me read Romans 9 to you. Paul brings up this very example from Genesis 25. Romans 9, it'll be on the screen, 9 to 16. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This was the promise that Sarah would give birth to Isaac. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, look, look at verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verse 12, she was told... The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it, that is the choosing of God's people, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Hmm. If you are a part of this church and you take Romans 9 to your chat rooms and Facebook in order to put to shame those who might have a different theological position than you, don't say you come to this church. This is not how God's people use God's word. It is not to win arguments. Both Esau and Jacob deserved God's wrath. Yet Jacob, through no merit of his own receives mercy. As another writes, there is no hiding the failures of the chosen line. Noah stumbles, he gets drunk. Abraham goes astray more than twice, tries to lie and say that his wife is his sister in order to save his own skin. Isaac and Rebekah are seen as partisan. Jacob is at times, as we said, positively obnoxious. 
Moses murders, David fails miserably, and on and on and on it goes. And so Paul says, being chosen by God depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so we have to wrestle with this in our own hearts right now, right now. We have to wrestle with this personally. Because if this is true of the patriarchs and the line of the chosen, how is it not true of us? None of us got into the family of God because God saw something good in us. This is the hardest thing for your preacher, your pastor to grasp. I I promise you, I have the hardest time grasping this. But the clear biblical example and truth is that none of us got into God's family because God saw something good in us. Instead, all of us got into the family of God because of the goodness that is found in God alone. As C.S. Lewis writes, he says, the Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good. But instead, the Christian thinks that God will make us good because he loves us. What makes you good? God's love. God says to the children of Israel through the prophets, I loved you because I loved you. Why do you love me? Because I love you. And his love makes us good. Our love doesn't, or our goodness doesn't make him love us. And this, I just admit to you, is fascinating intellectually, really hard emotionally. And here in Genesis 25, a decree, a prophecy is given over a pregnant mom who's got twins in her womb. The older's going to serve the younger. God has sovereignly chosen Jacob. Not because of the goodness found in Jacob, but because of the goodness found in God. Let's keep going. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red and all his body like a hairy cloak, so that they called his name Esau, which means red. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. (laughs) This scene is Remarkable. (laughs) There's the doting new mother with a hairy red baby in one hand, which is just a bizarre sort of description. And then you've got Jacob, and it just seems cute. If we didn't know all of that warring stuff between, it'd be like, oh, cute. He's grabbing his heel. That's so cute. But it's not cute. You know, Jacob's trying to pull him back in so that Jacob can swim and be the firstborn. And there's the doting mother with her twin babies, one on each arm. What a scene. Look at verse 27. Let's keep moving. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man 
dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau. Here's a tragic verse. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Sinfully, these parents chose a preferential child. Isaac loved Esau because he loved what he could provide. Rebecca loved Jacob. But they're two very different children, which if, if you have more than one child, you, you know how that is. Right? They, they couldn't be more different. Esau is... He's, a, he's, a, he's an outdoorsy kind of, of man, and he loves to kill things and drag them back home. He loves cleaning his guns. There's no guns back then, but you know what I mean. He loves, he's that kind of guy. He loves to kill things, but Jacob loves to cook things. Jacob loves, he's the indoorsy type. Perhaps he's the bookish type, and he doesn't like to go outside in the, in the, in the elements. He loves to cook what Esau brings in. Now, there's nothing wrong with, inherent, with their inherent differences at all. They're just different, different. But then it all comes to a head in verse 29. And we get our final vignette, our final scene in this story. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. Now, ironically, Esau, who's good at hunting, didn't get anything. He comes in hungry. Verse 30, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What is the use of a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Neither brother comes out of this scene looking great. Right? This is just a horrible scene. Esau comes off lazy and incredibly short-sighted, right? He knows what his birthright is. That's his entire future. And yet he's overcome with hunger, overcome with fleshly need that he's so short-sighted that he says, just, just, I'll do whatever it takes. I just need some food. He comes off as an overreacting and, and, and short-sighted fleshly man. And of course, Jacob is, is a calculated opportunist and he's looking to capitalize on his brother's weakness. Both Esau and Jacob look terrible in this scene. And what is so difficult for me, and I don't know if it's for you too, is I, I feel like I need Jacob to be better than this. Do you feel that? Do you feel like you need Jacob, the chosen one, to be better than this? Why is that? Why do we feel the need for characters like Jacob or Isaac or Abraham to be better than they are? 
I think the reason we need Jacob, I mean, we can expect Esau. He's, we know his, he's just going to be this kind of guy. And the author of Hebrews says, don't be like Esau. But why is it that we need Jacob to be better than he is? I think the reason is that we need Jacob and others in the Old Testament, these patriarchs, these chosen ones. We need them to be better than they are because we really want so badly to identify with them. And therefore, we need some kind of virtue, some inkling of virtue that causes God to choose them. If we can see some good virtue in Jacob, that will give us some peace of mind that maybe God saw that good virtue in us, and that's why he chose us. And so I just need Jacob to be better than he is. In other words, we want to know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Who are the good guys and the bad guys? So that I can do everything I can to convince myself that I'm not a bad guy, I'm a good guy. But what if there aren't any good guys? What do you do when there aren't any good guys and they're just all bad? What then? Who do you identify with? I don't want to be like Esau. I don't want to be like Jacob. Where do we go from here? Beloved, I want to end with this. Christian hope. Christian hope does not come from within us. But instead, Christian hope says... Hope came to us. This is where Christianity is utterly different than every other world religion and every other ideology on the face of the planet. Every other world religion in some form or another says, look within you, find virtue within you, find goodness within you, and maybe God will, will, will bless that. But Christianity says, no, 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 no. Hope does not come from within, it comes from without. And it comes to. Jesus Christ is the only morally pure human being to ever walk this planet. He's the only one. He's the only one that you can get closer and closer to and he gets more and more holy and more and more beautiful. Every other human being, the closer you get to them, the more ugly you see of them. You know this if you're married, right? You know this if you have any sort of intimate relationship. You get closer and closer and closer and you see more and more failure. Jesus is the only one that you get closer to and he gets more brilliant, more pure, more white, more holy. And he's the one that came. He's the one that came. And although he was the only begotten son of God, he willingly became identified with those who are outside of the family of God. In other words, he gave up his birthright and ultimately his life so that you and I could be adopted as sons and daughters. So that we wouldn't have to look for the good guys and the bad guys in the Bible stories and say, well, I just need to be like Abraham. Which Abraham? Abraham. 
There are bad guys and there are, and there's Jesus. That's the Bible. There are bad guys and there's Jesus and he comes to his people. And therefore our salvation is not based on our goodness, but his grace. Our salvation is not based on ethnicity, social status, moral pedigree. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on the mercy of God. God's grace is unmerited and therefore it is unwavering. Your giftedness does not determine God's grace. Where you are from has nothing to do with it. God doesn't care who your parents were or are. Grace doesn't care if you were in the gutter yesterday or you feel morally good right now in church. Grace is untamed, it is unearned, it is undeserved, it is unwarranted, it is undeniable, and therefore grace is unbelievable. In short, salvation is found in and only in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so... The very simple question for us this morning is, do you want that grace? Do you want that grace? Like Peter, when, when Jesus is washing the, deceit, the feet of the disciples and Peter gets up, right? No, don't wash my feet. Don't wash my feet. I wash you, Rabbi. And Jesus says, unless I don't wash you, your sins will remain. And so Peter says, okay, then start with my head and go all the way down. And so the question right now, right now, in this moment, are you going to jump up and say, no, 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 no. Don't you wash my feet. There's enough goodness in me to make it. Or will you jump up right now and say, Lord Jesus, use your grace. Start with my head and go all the way down. I need you. If it's not based on human will or exertion, but on your mercy, I want your mercy. If you want his grace, it's... You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need any degree. You don't need anything. You need nothing. You need your nothing. You deny yourself. That's what Jesus says. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Which is so hard. Deny yourself. Rid yourself of any notion that your goodness is sufficient for his glory. And then positively, through faith, cast yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. And then we say along with Paul, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us?